By far the most important and significant event in the whole course of human history will be celebrated, with or without understanding, at the end of this season, Advent. The towering miracle of God's visit to this planet on which we live will be glossed over, brushed aside, or rendered impotent by overfamiliarity. Even by the believer, the full weight of the event is not always appreciated. His faith is in Jesus Christ. He believes with all his heart that this man who lived and died and rose again in Palestine was truly the Son of God. He may have, in addition, some working experience that the man Jesus is still alive, and yet be largely unaware of the intense meaning of what he believes. Does he, for instance, as he daily treads the surface of this planet, reflect with confidence that my God has been here, here on this earth? Does he keep his faith wrapped in a napkin as a precious thing and a part? Or does he allow every discovery of the truth to enlarge his conception of the God behind this immensely complex universe? And does he then marvel and adore the infinite wisdom and power which so humbly descends to human stature? We rejoice in the fact that God has actually been here, and that is one half of the meaning of Advent. But there is another half. The eleven who had six weeks' experience of the risen Christ were told after he had finally left their sight that this same Jesus shall so come in like manner as he has seen him go. As a translator of the New Testament, I find in it no support whatever for the belief that one day all evil will be eradicated from the earth, all problems solved, and health and wealth be every man's portion. Even among some Christians, such a belief is quite commonly held, so that the second advent of Christ is no more and no less than the infinite number of comings of Christ into men's minds. Of course, no one would deny that there are millions of such comings every year, but that is not what the Christian church believes by the second advent of Christ, and it is most emphatically not what any writer of the New Testament ever meant in foretelling his second coming. The New Testament is indeed a book full of hope, but we may search it in vain for any vague humanist optimism. The second coming of Christ, the second eruption of eternity into time, will be immediate, violent, and conclusive. The human experiment is to end. Illusion will give way to reality. The temporary will disappear before the permanent. And the king will be seen for who he is. The thief in the night, the lightning flash, the sound of the last trumpet, the voice of God's archangel, these may all be picture language, but they are pictures of something sudden, catastrophic, and decisive. By no stretch of the imagination do they describe a gradual process. I believe that the atheistic scientific humanist point of view is, despite its apparent humanitarianism, both misleading and cruel. In appearance it may resemble Christianity in that it would encourage tolerance, love, understanding, and the amelioration of human conditions. But at heart it is cruel, because it teaches that this life is the only life, that we have no place prepared for us in eternity, and that the only realities are those that we can appreciate in our present temporary habitation. Hence the current hysterical preoccupation with physical security, particularly in relation to the hydrogen bomb, which infects the lives of many professing Christians. When, we may well ask, have Christians been promised physical security? In the early church it is evident that they did not even expect it, their security, their true life, was rooted in God, and neither the daily insecurities of the decaying Roman Empire, nor the organized persecution which followed later, could affect their basic confidence. In my judgment, the description which Christ gave of the days that were to come before his return is more accurately reproduced in this fear-ridden age than ever before in human history. Of course, we do not know the times and the seasons, but at least we can refuse to be deceived by the current obsession for physical security in the here and now. While we continue to pray and work for the spread of the kingdom in this transitory world, we know that its center of gravity is not here at all. 
When God decides that the human experiment has gone on long enough, yes, even in the midst of what appears to us confusion and incompleteness, Christ will come again. This is what the New Testament teaches. This is the message of Advent. It is for us to be alert, vigilant, and industrious, so that his coming will not be a terror, but an overwhelming joy. According to an old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. Of course, this is not always true. In particular, it is often not true of people with whom we are familiar. Indeed, with the best of friends, the more we know them, the more we grow to love and respect them. It is only the people who are superficial and at heart unreal who let us down when we grow familiar with them. It is then that our previous admiration can turn to contempt. But the old saying was not intended to apply only to human relationships. There are situations where human beings are at first filled with awe, and then, as they grow more and more familiar with them, they experience first indifference, and then contempt. The Spider-Man who works on scaffolding hundreds of feet above the ground has to be on his guard against this over-familiarity. The man who works with high-voltage electricity must also be aware of becoming contemptuous of his danger. And anyone who knows the sea will say to you in effect, by all means love the sea, but never lose your respect for it. Whenever familiarity breeds contempt, there is potential danger. The particular danger which faces us as Christmas approaches is unlikely to be contempt for the sacred season, but nevertheless our familiarity with it may easily produce in us a kind of indifference. The true wonder and mystery may leave us unmoved. Familiarity may easily blind us to the shining fact that lies at the heart of Christmastide. We are all aware of the commercialization of Christmas. We can hardly help being involved in the frantic business of buying and sending gifts and cards. We shall without doubt enjoy the carols, the decorations, the feasting and jollification, the presents, the parties, the dancing, and the general atmosphere of goodwill that almost magically permeates the days of Christmas. But we may not always see clearly that so much decoration and celebration has been heaped upon the festival that the historic fact upon which all the rejoicing is founded has been almost smothered out of existence. What we are in fact celebrating is the awe-inspiring humility of God, and no amount of familiarity with the trappings of Christmas should ever blind us to its quiet but explosive significance. For Christians believe that so great is God's love and concern for humanity that he himself became a man. Amid the sparkle and the color and music of the day's celebration, we do well to remember that God's insertion of himself into human history was achieved with an almost frightening quietness and humility. There was no advertisement, no publicity, no special privilege. In fact, the entry of God into his own world was almost heartbreakingly humble. In sober fact, there is little romance or beauty in the thought of a young woman looking desperately for a place where she could give birth to her first baby. I do not think for a moment that Mary complained, but it is a bitter commentary upon the world that no one would give up a bed for the pregnant woman, and that the Son of God must be born in a stable. This almost beggarly beginning has been romanticized by artists and poets throughout the centuries. Yet I believe that at least once a year we should look steadily at the historic fact, and not in any pretty picture. At the time of this astonishing event, only a handful of people knew what had happened, and as far as we know, no one spoke openly about it for thirty years. Even when the baby was grown to be a man, only a few recognized him for who he really was. Two or three years of teaching and preaching and healing people, and his work was finished. He was betrayed and judicially murdered, deserted at the end by all his friends. By normal human standards, this is a tragic little tale of failure, the rather squalid story of a promising young man from a humble home, put to death by the envy and malice of the professional men of religion. All this happened in an obscure, occupied province of the vast Roman Empire. It is 1,500 years ago that this apparently invincible empire utterly collapsed, and all that is left of it is ruins. Yet the little baby, born in such a pitiful humility and cut down as a young man in his prime, 
commands the allegiance of millions of people all over the world. Although they have never seen him, he has become friend and companion to innumerable people. This undeniable fact is, by any measurement, the most astonishing phenomenon in human history. It is a solid rock of evidence that no agnostic can ever explain away. That is why, behind all the fun and games at Christmas time, we should not try to escape a sense of awe, almost a sense of fright, at what God has done. We must never allow anything to blind us to the true significance of what happened at Bethlehem so long ago. Nothing can alter the fact that we live on a visited planet. We shall be celebrating no beautiful myth, no lovely piece of traditional folklore, but a solemn fact. God has been here once historically, but, as millions will testify, he will come again with the same silence and the same devastating humility into any human heart ready to receive him.